0: And welcome everybody to another episode of Smart Money Circle. I'm your host, Adam Sarhan. With me today is a very special guest, Mr. Jim O'Shaughnessy, chairman and co-chief investment officer at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management with approximately $4 billion in assets under management. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Adam. Thank you for being here. So Jim, I always like to begin. Can you tell us your
1: story on how you got started in the business? (laughs) It's a long one. Uh, So I'll I'll keep it brief. I was fascinated by the stock market as a young guy. I just, uh, you know, I would hear my, uh, my dad and my uncles arguing about it and I would sit there and listen to them and it was all talking about people, right? It was always the CEO says this, or I think their CFO is this. And I just kind of like wondered, I wonder if it would be more efficacious to look at, you know, kind of the underlying characteristics of the stock itself, right? Right. Um, So back in the day, I'm 60. So for all you younguns out there, I we actually had to use paper spreadsheets. Right. Um, So I went down to a uh, research uh, library. I grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. So I went to the James J. Hill Library. I was very ambitious. I was going to do the S and P 500. And I'm also very lazy, so when I got there and I looked through the book, I'm like, no, this is never happening. So I so I did the 30 stocks in the Dow and did a lot of research on high PE, low PE, high Div, low Div. Anyway, uh, ended up writing an article for Barrons on what's known now as the Dogs of the Dow, buying stocks with the highest dividend yield. But you know, I caught I caught the uh, the desire to just know more, right? And uh, I, one of my favorite writers is Dorothy Parker, who was a wit and a member of the New Yorker uh, or the Algonquin Roundtable. She used to say, uh, curiosity is the cure for boredom. There is no cure for curiosity. Right. Um, so literally, like <laughs> I, I just kept asking why, why, why? Very annoying. Uh, but that's, that's how I kind of got to what works on Wall Street. Um, and uh, the quantitative methods that we use to this very day at OSA. I love it. So, were your parent, or your dad and uncle, or the family members around you, were they in the business as well? No, they weren't actually. Uh, so, my grandfather uh, was a very successful oil uh, wildcatter. Okay. Um, and uh, he he was one of the first to start the trend of giving virtually all of your money away before you died. Oh wow, that's great. Um, So amazingly proud of the fact that he did that. Um, and the, the, the bit that he didn't get to before he died at, at age 88 in 1973 uh, went into a foundation. Okay. And so the foundation would have quarterly meetings and that's where they would be talking about the various stocks that the foundation was investing in. Right. The, family, the family business was oil. And uh, you know, one, one of the reasons why I never encouraged my, any of my children uh, to be interested in what I do was because I had the opposite. <laughs> right. I had, a, I had a, an uncle whom I loved. My uncle John really wanted me to be in the oil business. And it took all of my powers of persuasion to convince him that that would be a, a disaster for both him and the company and me. Right. Uh, he finally relented. Uh, but anyway, th- that was the context uh, of the conversations.
0: I love it. So they were, were they managing money for the foundation or was it more towards the lines of, oh, they were, okay.
1: Uh, n- n- no, th- th- they were the trustees, the trustees. Um, and they they outsourced, uh, like many foundations do today. We manage right. money for foundations, for example, right? Um, and and you know they were arguing about uh, whichever portfolio manager had given them a presentation that day. Yeah, um, and you know it, it was kind of like, uh, and and not not to throw my dad and uncle under the bus, because this was the seventies after all, Understood. before we knew any of this stuff, but right. it was kind of like all the things that were wrong about the way to approach investing, right? To talk about the CEO rather than the underlying numbers, right. uh, focus on the last three months, as opposed to, you know, the last 10 years. Seven years, years. right. Uh, uh, focus on, on names, like, ooh, that's a hot stock versus process, right? right. Which is... You know, the guy who came up with the idea of uh, process uh, in business, doing a process that is repeatable, Deming, uh, said, if you can't explain what you do as a process, you don't know what you're doing. Right. So. <laughs> I learned quite a bit from them, uh, but via negativia.
0: <laughs> no, that, that's actually a common theme here I have on the show because a lot of money managers that come on speak about their formative years and the lessons they've learned. And to me, it's fascinating because what you imprinted in you, whether consciously or unconsciously as a child, really resonates a lot of times as an adult. And it frames our thinking, whether negatively or positively, but it still has a big impact there until you get to an adult phase and then you drop it, so to speak, like before talked about. That's a whole other story. Yep. OK, so um, I love that, Jim, because you, you learned about what not to do, and then you took it upon yourself to discover what to actually do. Yep. And can you, that's a good segue to my next
1: question. Can you please tell us a little about your investment strategy? Sure. Um, so OSAM uses a variety of models that we have tested rigorously over as much historical data as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Often that goes all the way back to the 20s. Um, and so we are obsessed with A, making our models better. So people always joke, well, you're a quant. Well, what do you guys do all day, golf? No, right. uh, we are actively, we, I put it this way. We, uh, we research models the way more fundamental guys research stocks, right? Understood. So we're always trying to improve our methodology, but keep it absolutely um, in line with the foundational beliefs of uh, the various models. Um, so we manage uh, uh, strategies all the way from micro cap to mega cap. Um, and uh, each of them have their own uh, unique set of algorithms. And so what we believe is, uh, you know, find great investment strategies that work very well over time. That's the concept of base rates, right? So how often over any one, three, five, 10 year period does this strategy beat its benchmark? By right. how much? That, that kind of is really interesting because A, we know, kind of going in, that a strategy it doesn't work all the time, right? Uh, you know, you look at the ten-year base rate. Uh, so for some of our better strategies, there's still like a five to ten percent chance that it's going to fail, right? And your basis, right? So so it it allows us a lot more flexibility because we are able to talk with clients about things that a more fundamental approach, you know, just can't. Like, for example, uh, before the great financial crisis, we were able to point to, ooh, you know, look at the 70s. This thing went down 50%. Right. Can you handle that? Right. And, and, and then kind of religiously sticking with the process, right? Even when it's going against you, which is super hard, right? right. Uh, but I think that's one of the things that I'm most proud of uh, at OSAM and in my other companies. Um, we've never overridden a model, even during the great financial crisis. And we had a, a consultant come out and tell us, um, he worked for a sell-side uh, shop and right. he, he covered quants. And I asked him how many quants overrode their models during the crisis. And he said more than 60%. Wow. So, but to me, that is the death of your strategy's track record, right? Because if you're holding yourself out as dispassionate, As unwilling to emotionally override, and then you do it. Well, what's the point? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Right. Everything that went before is negated. Right. So we've never done that, um, luckily. And uh, you know, it's it's it, it it makes you very stoic, right? Because you know, the I always joke that the four horsemen of the investment apocalypse are fear, greed, hope, and ignorance. And if you think about it, only ignorance is not an emotion. Right. Fear, greed, and hope have wiped out much more money of portfolio value than any bear market because people, you know, we're emotional creatures. And it just doesn't seem to change, right? We've known about behavioral bias and emotional biases and all these things for more than a hundred years. Yep, I started looking it up in 1987 before behavioral bias was even a thing, right? It was still there. (laughs) Yeah, it was back then called psychology, right? Right, right. (laughs) So, but it's still there. And there's a really interesting, if you go to my Twitter account, my pin tweet is a presentation I gave at Google, Google Talks. Right. Um, and and I also put up the, the deck that I used. And one of the uh, uh, academic papers that's in there is really interesting. Basically, these guys got the idea to study identical twins. And I think it was in Sweden. I, I could be wrong, uh, but uh, probably Sweden because who else would have all the financial data? Why not? On yeah. <laughs> twins? Right. I, so anyway, their conclusion was really quite uh, stunning, which was... 45 to 50% of your investment strategy or method is genetic wow. and cannot be educated against. Wow. That's the part that's scary, wow. cannot be educated against. Right. And thus, you know, it's like the pogo cartoon we've met the enemy and it's us. I have a
0: book coming out, Jim, it's called Psychological Analysis, and the whole premise is basically based on what you just said, how to remove emotions from the equation, make, um, you know, rational, not emotional decisions, so on and so forth. So in addition to fundamental and technical analysis, you know, I'm trying to develop this third school of thought for psychology because that's really been front and center in my world for the last 20 plus years on my journey, which is nothing compared to yours, but has been my journey on Wall Street. And I've been fascinated by the ability and the inability for people to execute and actually achieve the returns that so few have been able to achieve. And you're, I mean, my studies and my research has shown exactly what you're saying. Most people just can't do it. Yeah,
1: it's it's a problem because, you know, when you look at the uh, process that over time is very successful, it's simple, but it's not easy, Right. right? And so I often say that we arbitrage human nature, um, and it's kind of like the last sustainable edge, right? Because uh, markets change second by second, but right. human nature barely budges millennia by millennia. Doesn't move. And either. and and so I think that you know sometimes people think I'm kidding. Like I I mentor some younger people in our business, and like they'll say, what should I read? And I'll say, understand evolutionary psychology and biology, That's you're going to be, and then history and then philosophy, right. and then, then read some finance. Right. Um, and they're like, um, okay. <laughs> they don't get it, right, they don't get it. <laughs> they, they do later. <laughs> yeah, seriously, after they get there, yeah, right. <laughs> after they
0: taste it, so to speak. Exactly. No, I love that. So um, I love your human arbitrage thing. I've got something called intellectual arbitrage and time arbitrage, which is a whole nother story, but I love what you're saying there.
1: Yeah, time and, arbitrage is a good one too. Uh, thank you. Because, um, you know, we, we have time arbitrage at OSAM because uh, our, our view is, you know, we, we have a long, long-term uh, goal and yeah. our clients understand that. And, you know, by the way, I should also say, I think that the best advice that I can give anyone who's watching this, right, is it doesn't have to be my strategy that you use. What you need to find is something that's right for you, right? Right. Because you can't like read what works on Wall Street and say, I'm gonna do that if you don't believe in it, right? And if you don't tinker a little bit. So I often also say, you know, For the majority of people, unless you just really love the market and stuff, indexes, man. I mean, hundred percent. Yeah, and then and then go on and enjoy the aspects of your life that are non-market related. I I talk to a lot of people who feel that they should be interested, but they're not. They're not. You don't. You don't have to be interested. You, it's okay. <laughs> it's, it is because this is kind of like a golden age, right, for investors. Yep. Zero transaction costs. Yep. Um, ETFs that cost a few basis points, if they're not free. Mm-hmm. You know, just if, if you. Fed's not, got
0: rates at zero. Yeah, they're printing. Yeah.
1: If you're not interested, that's great. Yeah. You know. Follow your passion in literature or music or art or whatever it is. Right. And, and, you know, dollar cost average into an index fund. Yeah. You're not going to have a great story at a cocktail party, that's but I always use that as, hey, that's good.
0: <laughs> Break through the, yeah, exactly. You're going to have the returns and that's what matters. Exactly. So, no, Jim, I love this. So, tell me a little about how you handle risk with your models and
1: uh, what mistakes you see people make with respect to risk management. So, um, With all of our models, uh, the risk uh, metrics are baked right into the selection strategy. And let me give you an example. Um, So during the great financial crisis, um, if say you were just a uh, simplistic deep value person, you would look and you would say, wow, Citigroup has like the third highest, I could be wrong on the number, but directionally this is correct. It's like the, the third highest dividend yield in the S and P it went down to a dollar in 2000. I remember that. Yeah. Well, and and that's kind of my point, right? So we have a whole host of built in metrics to tell us what stocks we shouldn't buy. So for example, Citigroup, we we use what we call um, factor composites. Mm -hmm. So it's not just one factor, it's several. Right. And in this example, so, city to somebody who was a l- lover of dividend yield, th- yeah. they probably would have bought it, right? But, but we had one called financial strength and um, earnings quality, mm-hmm. and oof, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, city was a basket case on those. So it immediately got negated, right? So we use as part of our ongoing risk assessment of stocks. Um, we have certain groups of factors or composites that they're only there to, to push stocks out of our consideration, right? right. Um, so we feel pretty lucky about that in that it, it saves us from a lot of city groups uh, in, in terms of that particular risk. Um, we also have our sell discipline baked right into our process, right? Okay so you often hear people having conversations about you know many portfolio managers they really know what stock to buy mm-hmm. but they're not so good at selling yes. right and again that's back to i think a behavioral bias so we bake it right in and so we we get a weight of the evidence right and so our high conviction, right? right? It isn't our conviction, it's the conviction of the model. Okay, yeah. So if, I, if a stock we use what we call a, an ongoing uh, monthly rebalance, right? And so we rerun the models every month. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> if a stock shows up, we add to that position and, mm-hmm. and thus we can get uh, you know up to you know un, it's got to be 5% as our top right. uh, at purchase. But um, so if a stock keeps showing up, we keep adding to the position. On the other hand, if a stock no longer shows up, we start subtracting from the position. Interesting. Um, and then finally, um, we work mostly uh, directly with uh, intermediaries, with advisors. Um, so we, we don't do end client risk analysis, mm-hmm. but we certainly do have some, some things that we uh, suggest to our partners in terms of assessing somebody's real risk versus what they say they can take. Yeah. Understand. Uh, my my friend Jason Zweig, who is a columnist at the Wall Street Journal, has a great metaphor for this. He says most people think that they're doing risk measurement of a client, right, by showing them a picture of a snake. Right. He goes, he goes, what you really ought to do is throw a live snake in their lap. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Very different reactions. Total different
0: reaction. No, I love that. So, Jim, from your risk standpoint, I'm curious here. So, five percent positions in your overall portfolio. And you'll add to it, and, if add, it sh- add, <laughs>
1: yeah at time of purchase, right?
0: At time of purchase, right. Yeah. So when you so add it, to it, do you allow it to go higher?
1: Um, we, we, we allow it to go higher um, after we've hit the 5% limit. Right. Okay. So, but that's market appreciation. appreciation. That isn't, okay. Yeah. That, that isn't us adding.
0: Okay. Got it. And then as far as risk uh, from entry to exit, do you have stops? Like, okay, if it falls 10% below my entry price, I'll sell it or
1: 20% or some other levels or how does that work? Yeah, so no, we don't. Mm-hmm. Um, we tested that extensively um, on a variety of strategies. And, um, you know, I'm going to get a lot of booze and hissing here, but um, That's okay. We want the truth. It, That's it, all we're it, looking it, for. <laughs> empirically, it doesn't work.
0: So even if you put a wide stop of 20% below your entry or something along those lines, it doesn't work.
1: Especially if you are uh, investing, so we do both value and growth, but our version of growth is momentum, right? Okay. Price momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you an example. So um, we have a strategy that invests in small to mid cap uh, uh, momentum stocks, right? Yeah. And, and when we were doing the testing um, for putting stops in place, mm-hmm. um, basically it took us out of all the biggest winners in that portfolio year after year after year. Wow why because guess what they're really volatile right and, and and they run up and they run down and so we just again because we need evidence when we ran the tests just there there was no efficacy in putting stops in place interesting so, how, what do you sell based on? In other words, you said you sell yeah. when it, yeah. So, so based on the model, right? So let's, let's take um, our market leader's value, which is a large cap, um, high shareholder yield strategy, right? Mm-hmm. Shareholder yield is dividend yield plus buyback. Okay. okay? Um, so if a company gets uh, included in the model, mm-hmm. um, we keep buying it up to that 5% cap, right? Uh, but then as the model continues forward in time, and mm-hmm. by the way, anyone wants to see this graphically, go to our website, www.osamoscarsamadammary.com, mm-hmm. sh- click on philosophy and process, and we've got some pretty cool graphs that show I that them works. love the They are really uh, cool. Th- th- thank you. Yeah. Um, so it just happens as part of the model, right? So if, if let's say uh, stock XYZ, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, got got selected a lot and it was a fairly big position. but then you know it, it wasn't selected anymore. Little by little, we'd move out. Now we do have uh, a series of what we call red flags uh, that will have us liquidate an entire position. Oh wow. Um, and those are things like you know fraud um, yeah. and, you know uh, restatement of numbers such that it wouldn't have gotten in when, when yeah. we yeah. Yeah, we yeah. ran it. Um, and and so those are there, but for the most part, just built right into the model, no longer meeting the criteria. We sell, sell, sell until it's Got no longer it. in the portfolio.
0: Makes sense. And then as far as profit targets on the way up, if that's selling on the way down, do you guys have arbitrary profit targets or is it all, I didn't think so, but go ahead. Yeah, no,
1: yeah. N- okay. not at all. Um, and again, uh, forecasts, we, we've collected forecasts for a long time, right? Mm-hmm. And and other people like Philip Teatlock have done it much better than us, David Dreamin, another one. Um, they're worse than flipping a coin. Yeah, And um, that's all of us, by the way. I couldn't agree more, I couldn't agree more. <laughs> couldn't agree more. Uh, <coughs> we, and, and this falls under yet another behavioral bias, which is we as human beings, first off we're all, we all have to a degree, greater or less the same operating system, right? Yep. Human, human OS. And, and so people who think they're an exception to this are only fooling themselves. Well, that's right? a
0: personal blind spot bias, right? If yeah. you ask 100 married people, how many people get divorced? Nobody's gonna raise their hand. Statistically Ex- half of them are getting divorced, right? That's, that's right. Yeah.
1: And, and so the point is though, w- another thing that we really crave as human beings is the illusion of control. Yes. And, and when when that goes away, people get really freaked out. Yes. And so, I mean, witness the entire pandemic right and and people arguing about masks for God's sake right yeah boom yeah. and yet th- that's the whole that falls under the very human desire for that you control. know control or illusion of control yeah. that's why forecasts and predictions are so popular
0: mm-hmm.
1: right it gives people a false sense that they know what's going to happen and then again, I'll tell you, our brains are really interesting things. I always say, we're walking around with these quantum computers in our noggins and we don't have an operating manual. There's no manual, right. And, 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 and so one, one of the reasons why I urge people to keep um, written journals, right? Mm-hmm. Is because one of the things that our brains do, which I, I think evolution thinks is a kindness. It's not a kindness for investors, but it, it updates our memories and believe me, I've kept journals since I was 19. And I know this to be true because I've been called a liar in my own handwriting, right? Mm-hmm. What happens is it updates our memories to make them consistent with our current viewpoint. Right. right? Marry that to hindsight bias, <sighs> right? Where okay. we yeah. naturally think, well, everybody saw that coming. And then you go back and look at what was being said at the time. Mm-hmm. Nobody saw that coming. <laughs> exactly. And and so... And then of course the media will pick up the one guy out of the thousand forecasts or gal that uh wrote the the right one and say genius let's put them on the air yeah exactly so they're always
0: bearish or they're always bullish or whatever the case is broken rock clock is right twice they got it so no that's really really good um i guess question for you jim on that note if you want to remove the biases from the equation which is very difficult if not impossible to do how do, I understand your point about what you just said about having a model and then having the gumption or the ability to stick to that model. And yours is very time tested and quantitative based. So it doesn't apply to discretionary investor It applies to the quantitative guy um, and finding a system or an approach that works for you and twi- tweaking it a little bit to make it work for you. But how do you speak to the or how do you help people overcome those biases that hurt them, so to speak, if they can't be on un- Taught, but you just said you can't learn how to overcome those biases. How do you solve for X right there? If you can speak to that a little bit.
1: Boy, I I wish I had the definitive solution. I don't. (laughs) Okay. Um, But one of the things that um, we urge a more conventional uh, approach, uh, discretionary investing, um, is develop a checklist, right? Mm -hmm. Marry that to the journal Mm -hmm. and go down your checklist and say, you know, did I look at this? Did I look at this? You know, check it off, right? Right. Um, because the, the whole checklist thing has pretty good research on it. And it, most of it's been done in medical situations. Yep. Um, but they find that in medical situations where a checklist is used, you have a much lower failure rate and everything 100%. else. 100%, yeah. Um, so write um, about why you're doing something, Right. Because when you go back to it, right or wrong, right? You're going to be able to see what you're thinking. And then we advocate that people understand that don't, as my friend Annie Duke says, don't look at any one outcome. She calls that resulting, right? Yeah. So what you want to look at is in aggregate, right? Mm-hmm. So not, not the one stock that you want to brag about at the cocktail party, right. nor the one that you don't want anyone to know that you won't. Right, right. <laughs> But aggregate them all, mm-hmm. and, and say, okay, how am I doing? Yeah. Um, and and the more you do that, the more you're going to shift your frame of reference, your internal mental frame of reference, mm-hmm. away from individual singular outcomes, because right, a good process can have a bad outcome. Hundred percent. And conversely, a yeah. bad process can have a good outcome. Right. So, so people who make their decisions based on outcomes, single outcomes are not gonna be happy over long periods of time. Well, that's an
0: outcome bias. It's another cognitive bias, right? It's called outcome bias, yeah. Yes, that's right. No, that's, that's really good advice. So you have two main buckets. You said value, and then you have momentum or growth. Um, a few questions are coming to mind, but first, how do you define value? I know value like beauty is very subjective, yeah. but in
1: your mind's eye, how do you define value? So um, we have a, um, as, as What Works on Wall Street, as I wrote new editions, I took advantage of learning from others, right? So I read a lot of academic pieces and, and I just happened upon one that was like, it was about me <laughs> um, and What Works on Wall Street. And these guys were saying, we thought that maybe if you combined O'Shaughnessy's price to sales ratio with PE ratio, you'd have better outcomes. And I'm like, that's that's very clever. Yeah. So we we started doing that and we found that even more uh, when you look when you look at the entire balance sheet from top to bottom, mm-hmm. you get the factors that define our value composite. And and so the way we define value is a a stock that passes through all of these ideas of relative cheapness, right? Based on PE, price to sales, EBITDA to enterprise value, price to free cash flow, etc. cetera. Uh, because we found that over time and proviso, we know value has not worked well over the last 10 years. Understand. And, and okay, you're right. Um, but then I guess our added, um, definition, if you will, mm-hmm. is the what we talked about earlier. We have other uh, composites that kick stocks out that might be fine. If you were only interested in deep value, mm-hmm. right? They'd mm-hmm. make it in, okay. but we have these earnings quality, financial strength, um, levels of debt, all of those types of things mm-hmm. that we have found lead to really sad outcomes. Okay. And so basically our way uh, on the value side is we have two approaches primarily. Mm-hmm. So um, for, for large cap stocks, we found that uh, winnowing down the list by our value composite and then these other don't buy this stock, financial strength and earnings quality. And then we focus in, um, for example, with our market leaders value on stocks with high shareholder yield. For smaller cap and micro cap names, we will actually sort on the value composite. Okay. Right. So the ones who are the cheapest mm-hmm. get get in in the in this small and micro cap environment. Mm-hmm. Very different environments. Large stocks behave differently than than small stocks. Right. On on the growth side, same kind of thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Except we emphasize and often sort on the final momentum composite, which we use um, several uh, momentum. Uh, uh, Marks indicators, okay. Yeah, yep. but then we also use uh, the how volatile that momentum was standard deviation of return because we found that historically stocks with great three, six, nine, 12 month price momentum are really volatile, right? As I said before, but the ones who are super volatile mm-hmm. generally provide less return than the ones that are a little less volatile. Nice. So we have that built right into our composite and uh, we select stocks on the growth side based on that.
0: So what would be some of the, uh, what, what is that sweet spot from volatility where too much is no good or too little is no good?
1: You know, I'd have to I'd have to look, have the data right in front of me and to give you a good answer. Um, but let let's say we eliminate the the upper several deciles based on volatility.
0: Got it. That's just price and, action. And that, by
1: the yeah. And by the way, that changes continually, right? Yep. If you have a very calm market, you it, the upper deciles on volatility are much lower, right. than if you have like a crazy market, like we had in the beginning of the pandemic, right? Right woo. Yep. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and so that's another, but that brings up another really great point, which is it's relative, right? We don't have like, we don't say if it's above X, we will not buy. Yeah. Like right? if the
0: stock moves $5 <coughs> or five percentage points or whatever it is. Yeah. That's not. Yeah, how it.
1: We always say relative to what's going on.
0: Understood. That's really good. So the actual definition, if you were to use Hey, this stock is overvalued if it has a PE above X, or undervalued if it has pe- price of sales below X. Were there any metrics that you would say that hey, this is an undervalued stock, or is it still this su- subjective side of it where beauty's in the eye of the beholder or value's in the eye of the beholder?
1: So yeah, I mean, we don't do subjective, right? So think of that's us. That's my as question. If, um, yeah. yeah, that's where yeah, yeah. the audience yeah. is going to ask
0: me. Hey, Adam, how come you didn't ask them? You know.
1: Uh, so think of us as the Vulcans uh, to Dr. McCoy's human. Right. And. Um, so everything, again, is relative, right? So um, if, we were gonna, if we were going to look just at value, mm-hmm. right? We would say that it's on a continuum and the decile we are interested in is the cheapest decile, okay? Got it. okay? Um, and, and what cheap is uh, depends on the market, yep. right? So if you've got a market like today where they're pricing things you know, historically outside of any norm that we've seen, it still doesn't defeat our model because our model just ranks. And right, so this is the cheapest 10%, which might look very expensive to an investor from 10 years ago. Understood. But relative to today, it's the cheapest desktop.
0: No, that makes perfect sense. So I guess, Jim, next question is, what are some timeless lessons that you haven't already shared that you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience?
1: Sure. So um, you are your own worst enemy and i include myself me right? too <laughs> any any anybody who says oh yeah i see how they do that but that doesn't affect me is fooling themselves toast yeah um and you know it's again human nature right human operating system is we are really good at seeing flaws in others and there's a great quote by anthony demello who was a who was kind of a seeker and spirituality and stuff he was like if you want to know your own faults look at what annoys you and other people <laughs> right that's really powerful that is really so, yeah so so uh internalizing that is very very helpful yeah um and by the way uh it, it, being really smart having a high iq does not exempt you as a matter of fact it makes you more likely yes. right what are really smart people good at they're good at narratives. They're good at convincing people. They're good at all those things, right? And so they're going to tell a much better story. Um, still a story, right? So uh the second thing would be that um know your really know your goals. It's funny because we were joking before we went on the air that we're not gonna cover politics, and I joke that. Um, you know, I, we had an event upcoming and I said, well, let's talk about something uncon- uh, uncontroversial like religion. Right. <laughs> but, but the whole point is um, understand what your goals are. A lot of people really don't. Right. I've talked to thousands and thousands of people. And it's like, one of the things that I see, and this is no fault of their own, by the way, is just like, they're not really even aware. What, what are my goals for most people? they are gone. Yeah, yeah but for, but but for most people they have really simple goals. Yeah. They want to fund their retirement, they want to be able to give money to their kids or pay for their kids college, you know, really simple stuff. And and so if you understand that, you're going to you're going to find that process that's better for you than somebody who wants like to say, I bought Tesla when it was at 10. Uh, or, you know, fill in the blank, right? right. Um and and so understand that. And then and then finally, I guess, um, understand that even the greatest investors throughout history have totally screwed up. And, and it's not that they've screwed up, it's how they handled that. Right. Right? So chumbawamba, I get knocked down, but I get up again, right? Yeah. Um, yeah and, and so that a lot of people because of human nature right we, we we try to guard ourselves against these failures right we don't want other people knowing about them things right. like that to me they're not failures they're they're learning opportunities right. and if you treat them as learning opportunities you're going to guess what you're going to soar way above other people because you know most people don't get that and then finally There's a huge difference between understanding something intellectually and understanding it emotionally, right? And I've got to tell you, man, if you don't understand it emotionally, you're You're going to get, you're done. Because what happens, right? Fear, greed, hope, and ignorance come along. (laughs) The four horsemen come riding in. Mm -hmm. And what happens is, guess what? The perceptions that you are hitting your perception field bypass Mm -hmm. mr executive up here the prefrontal cortex (laughs) and they go back to the lizard brain which is all emotional fight or flee Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. and what people don't really understand is evolution is pretty cool it shuts down all of these other things and intellectual yep and it like boom i gotta act right now and historically that was great because our, our forebears who were wandering around as hunter-gatherers on the plains of Africa, if they, if right. they saw a bush rustling, they ran away.
0: <laughs> That's it. right? And snake. so I Get that snake out I, of here. I, I, yeah. I
1: joke that we are all descended from cowards, right? Because right. the bold people went in and they, whoops, they got eaten by the saber-toothed tiger. Done. Um, right. So, you know, give yourself some room. Be kind to yourself because we're all yeah. the same. 100%
0: i love that you know the human operating system i've gone back and studied uh markets and and economies and cycles and blah 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 you see the the stocks change the bubbles change the asset classes change the centuries change but the one constant's human nature right so if you go into a crowded theater yell fire you get the same response everywhere which speaks to your point and we are all the same so that's some really really good lessons you just share with us my pleasure um what are some timeless uh, you, I guess the mistakes I was going to ask you next, but I guess you, you've kind of hit on those. Are the other mistakes that you see people make either on or off Wall Street that you'd like to share?
1: So, I mean, look, mistakes are a part of life. And and like I just said a moment ago, it it's all about how you perceive them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a very stoic, stoical attitude, right? Um, the only thing that you control is your own mind. Yeah so if if you're watching or reading some you know some horrible thing right and you can't do anything about it investing an ounce of your time and emotion into that is going to be bad for you it's a negative
0: roi is what i say
1: (laughs) it it always is yes right so so that's a continual mistake that i see um and and, and believing, that, <laughs> believing that you have greater control over things that are so totally out of your control, yeah. that, that's a big mistake, right? Because you, know, it's, it, you, you can't. And then finally, uh, this one I don't talk about often, but I've been thinking about it a lot. Um, you can't read other people's minds. Right. And, and so <laughs> I joke around on Twitter and, because I say, anyone who responds to one of my tweets with, so you're saying, I immediately mute. <laughs> <laughs> right, Because no, I'm actually not saying that. Because right. normally it goes, so you're saying, and then they fill in their version of what- of what they think you're they, saying. They are right. attributing to me, right? Yeah. And, and it's, we all do it. Mm-hmm. Again, I'm not exempting myself. We all do it. And it's, it's good to pause and say, okay, I, I can't read other people's mind. Another problem that plagues us as, as people uh, is premature certainty, right? We, we become prematurely certain about something and then guess what? You're it wrong. gets, yeah, it, it gets <laughs> kicks from your open-minded over yeah. to no, 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 I'm now gonna seek only information that confirms my priors. Right. And, and that's not good which is confirmation so, bias, another yeah. cognitive bias, yeah. And and the, the thing is, is that try to remain as open-minded as you possibly can, because we can't read minds. We don't know what other people are doing. We, we should judge them by what they do, not what they say, right? right? That's a big one. That's huge, huge. And, and because, I, look, we could all get uh, on any social network today, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, and just say, I think, you know, and fill in the blank. <laughs> and and if we're not doing anything about what we say we think, we're it's not pointless. doing anything, it's yeah, pointless, exactly. right? And so, but I'm also like what I call a pragmatic optimist, right? Mm-hmm. I I would never short the US because mm-hmm. look, the, the politics can get all screwy and it has, but, I am long the, US, the people of the United States and right. the people who wanna come here. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of really great books about how the DNA, the very DNA of America is different than virtually every other country. Yeah. Why? Because everybody who came here for the most part, except for um, indigenous uh, Americans, right. W- w- we're risk takers. Yes. I mean, what kind of person wakes up in the morning in, uh, let's say, Norwegian uh, mm-hmm. or Norway, sorry, and, and says, huh, you know what? I don't have any money. I'm gonna jump on that ship, go and steer it. I'm gonna go over to America. I'm gonna leave my family behind. And don't speak and the language, no money, no yeah,
0: No internet, no phones, nothing, nothing. Just
1: see you later. See you later. So, yeah. so, so the profile of risk-seeking behavior Mm-hmm. is very different than non-risk-seeking. Our country happens to be made up of people who are descendants who are massive risk takers. Mm-hmm. But I also, another one of my little soapboxes that I'm on that people get mad at me for, but I keep on it. It's like, you know, one of the biggest advantages the United States has, in my opinion, is that the smartest people in the world want to live and work here. Right. We should let them. And, yep. Um, you know, half of Silicon Valley uh, successful companies founded by immigrants. Right. Um, you know, some of the hardest working people I've ever had the pleasure of talking with and interacting with, immigrants, mm-hmm. and and because they're kind of like showing, I can do this, right? Yeah. And and so we should take a maximum advantage of that. Um, and and so you know, there, there, there's there's so much that we need to learn. And I, and, you know, I'm still learning every day. So you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> <Boom>. <laughs> that would be fantastic, right? If, if you ended this, this <laughs> podcast on you saying that you and, then and, then, and then done. <laughs> Mic drop, right? I love fantastic. that. That would be fantastic.
0: So I just, sorry. I, I had to just throw that in there. Um, I, love, so, it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Warren Buffett has, has the exact same point. He calls it the great American tailwind, right? Where it's, you know, America's, go, I, I couldn't agree more. So I guess, Jim, you've been very generous with your time, your knowledge, your expertise and everything. Um, just a few final questions here. What advice would you give to your 30 year old self or younger people listening or watching today?
1: So um, let's, let's do with younger people because luckily I had already figured out parts of what I'm gonna give as advice when I was 30. Um, Read everything, and, and I mean everything. Some of the greatest insights that I've had, like if you go and look at the threads I do on Twitter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the Dao Di Jing by Lao Tzu, which is yes. uh, you know, an ancient text from China. Yeah. Um, boy, they got a lot of good stuff to say about investing. Mm-hmm. Uh, read psychology, read biology, understand evolution, because these are the things that are really pulling the trigger. Mm-hmm. right? Uh, I'm not saying don't read finance. Do. I, I read every major financial academic and practitioner paper that comes out. You know, guys like Michael Mobison, amazing. Read everything he writes. Fantastic. Um, you know, and and by the way, they're all on Twitter. They are. And they, they get announced. So start following them. Um, the other bit of advice that I would give is understand and this, I would also give my younger self because I, when I was 30, was a proselytizer and believed my way was the only way. That's not true. Right. And, and you need to understand that there's a lot going on with your average person. Mm-hmm. You, you can't read their mind. Right. And if, if you really get to understand that, you're gonna be a better person, I think. Because you're you're gonna you're gonna give people more room, um, and and that's good because I think we're kind of going into a golden age, and people laugh at this too, but I think that Twitter is going to emerge, um, and Twitter specifically,
0: yeah,
1: uh, despite their best efforts to make this not happen, <laughs> right. I think that it's going to emerge as the first diversified global intelligence network, mm-hmm. and so, but. There's always a but, right? Of course, yeah. But it's the 80-20 rule here. Yeah. There's a lot of noise. Garbage, and, yeah. and, and you've got to get good at curating who you're following. Right. And if you do that and you take it a step further and call, them, get to know them, meet yeah. them. Yeah. Some of my better friends, honestly, I, I met through Twitter. Look, we're here now because of Twitter. Exactly. I out Twitter, yeah. And and so um, follow right now the young people, my God, it's like I was talking to my son who's the CEO of OSAM, right? Mm-hmm. And God, I love young people because yeah. they 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 really understand so Zoomers, not millennials, but Zoomers, right? right? So right. people like 24 and younger, yeah, they are native to the digital world. Yeah. They grew and up when, in it. Yeah, yeah. When I see some of the things these kids can do, and by the way, that's the last thing I'll say. Please, for the love of God, do not bash people by their generation. It's so bad. I mean, right? Okay, boomer. I think it's funny. So right. I actually recorded my grandson saying it to me and, and then somebody made a GIF of it. Um, and and so uh, don't paint with a broad brush, mm-hmm. right? The, the, judge people by what they what they do and who they are by their ideas. right? Uh, and, you know, it's equally bad for boomers to be like, oh, those millennials or all oh, of those zoomers. Gen Z. Stop, stop, yeah. Yeah. stop. Yeah. Because he, guess what? I had the pleasure of meeting uh, several Navy SEALs. And uh, the last one I met was a big deal in the Navy SEALs. And guess what? He was a millennial. And this guy, boy, <laughs> come the Armageddon, I want him in my foxhole. <laughs> so, so, so so, don't paint with a broad brush every, and we've, by the way, something we've done mm-hmm. all throughout human history. Yeah. Oh, that generation. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And don't do that. It's so dumb. But, yeah. Look at what people are saying, not, not grouping them by their age or whatever.
0: Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. And to your earlier point too, about look at what people do, not what they say with the investing. It's like, okay, the guy comes on, talks his book and he could be selling or whatever the case may be. So focus on the actions, not not anything else. Well, Jim, this has been super, super fun. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk today and sharing your, your, your wisdom, your intelligence and all the fun stuff in between. And hopefully we'll see you on again soon.
1: Fantastic, Adam. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.